Welcome to the Ownership Economy Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Hamid Rashid, a former Director General for Multilateral Economic Affairs at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Bangladesh. After his time in Bangladesh as a diplomat, he moved on to the UN, where he's now the Chief of Global Economic Monitoring. We take a bit of a detour from Web3 and blockchain to discuss macroeconomics with Dr. Rashid. We dive into the functioning of the Fed in the U.S. and how its policies impact economic opportunity and inequality in the U.S. and abroad. We then use this framework to discuss the opportunities and pitfalls of the Fed introducing a central bank digital currency in the U.S. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Ownership Economy Podcast. This week, we are joined by Hamid Rashid, a former Director General for Multilateral Economic Affairs at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Bangladesh and now the Chief of Global Economic Monitoring at the United Nations. So Hamid, welcome, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, so Hamid, kind of what we often do at the beginning of these is, is talk a little bit about your origin story or how you got to where you are today. It'd be great to hear the path you took to get to the UN and the work that you're doing today at the UN. Yeah, thank you, Martin. And uh, thanks for inviting me to this uh, podcast. It's a pleasure. My origin or my, uh, my tra- trajectory uh, to the UN, before I get to that, I need to uh, do the standard disclaimer. Whatever I say here is purely my personal views, not the views of the UN or the member states. So it's uh, very personal views that I would share uh, today. So that's uh, having said that, so I started my career as a, as a diplomat in, from Bangladesh. I did my undergrad in the US and then went back and joined the foreign service. And then uh, a few years later, I was assigned to the Bangladesh mission to the UN. And that's when I got really interested in economic issues because I was looking after the economic issues in the UN at that time as a delegate, as a delegate from a developing country. Then I I pursued my PhD. I I decided to take time off from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from my, my diplomatic service and decided to pursue a PhD in economics. I started at Columbia, got my PhD. Then after my PhD, again, I did the unusual thing I went back to Bangladesh to work for the government for a few years. And then I was um, in a sort of headhunted, sort of offered a position at the UN. And I, I since 2000, I would say 2008, November 2008, I've been to the UN. And um, the, one of the reasons I was sort of, you know, invited or, or I was excited about joining the UN, I was UN at that time, right after the global financial crisis, UN was sort of started a new initiative called Second Opinion Initiative, giving member states alternative perspectives on the global financial crisis or how they can come out of it. So I was brought in to to provide support and to lead that initiative. And I did that for five years. And then um, now I'm the head of global economic monitoring at the UN. And what do you do? So fascinating career. We originally connected around Bangladesh um, and then, you know, have had kind of a series of amazing conversations about macroeconomics. I feel like every time I'm in New York, I got to look you up and kind of go down a rabbit hole on macro with you. But the, uh, what do you do in kind of the global economic monitoring unit or social affairs of the UN? So I have three, uh, you know, key functions. First one's of course the the title tells it a little bit that I, I, we have a global macro model. We run a growth forecast for 179 countries that are all linked through a trade matrix. So we, we do the short-term forecast. Short-term for us is two-year horizon. So, for example, uh, when we release our forecast in, in January, so we look at the current year, 
and the next year. So two-year horizon, the forecasting, and that's the bulk of our work because we have very robust model and that that runs, you know, probably you know for each country about thirty or forty equations, and we solve those equations, and of course it's all generated by the computer. We don't do it manually, and then we have a, a global growth forecast, this aggregated individual country uh, growth, and then if you aggregate them, then you get a global growth estimates. That's my key function. Second role is that based on that, we also have a publication. I'm the lead author of, of a report called World Economic Situation and Prospects. This is a report that has been in existence since 1947. But and we name changed quite a bit, but this is the flagship report of the UN on the global economy. So I'm the lead author of that report. And we have my own team in New York, but also we have five regional teams and they all provide input and we we publish it every January and we also have a media update of the report. That, that whatever forecast that we do, that's, that goes into the report, but we go beyond the forecast. We analyze the global macro trends, the key risks to the global economy, what are the way outs and what are the policy, what are the spillover effects that you mentioned in the introduction of major central banks. They do certain things that those policies have global spillovers and we try to capture those spillover effects. And the third work that I do is uh, related to the, what I mentioned early on, provide on-demand policy advice to governments. Uh, whenever a government wants to you know, get some opinion about bond issuance or about their, their macro forecast or, or some policy adjustments, if they come to us, again, we don't have a mandate. mandate. It's on-demand basis, and I provide support from the UN side, from the UN Secretariat side. Great. So it sounds like it's almost like similar to what someone would do at a macro hedge fund in terms of a, a CIO. But the difference here is that you're providing kind of economic analysis with the goal of kind of furthering the UN's goals around sustainable development, around inclusion, around economic growth to support developing nations and kind of the broad group of, of people that are not part of the West today, developed countries today. And so one of the things that we are always thinking about on this podcast is inclusive growth and how we can create more inclusive economies. And we talk a lot about Web3. We talk a lot about crypto because we see these as tool sets or primitives that allow us to build more inclusive economies. But there's really, you know, a to understand decentralized finance, to understand the role that cryptocurrency can play in building uh, more inclusive economies, the role that blockchain technology and, and kind of distributed ledger technology and cryptography can play in building more inclusive economies. We really need to understand traditional macro a bit. And what we want to do in this episode is we really want to dive into how the U.S. kind of monetary policy works and the implications of U.S. monetary policy on cryptocurrency and also on kind of the potential of central bank digital currencies as they evolve and as the U.S. and other, other governments around the world consider them. And so the first thing that we want to do is, is kind of go into exactly how monetary policy works. And I guess there's no better person to explain this because you have this background in economics, you've got this PhD in, from Columbia, but you also have the perspective of someone who grew up in Bangladesh, who's worked in as a diplomat for, for Bangladesh and also has worked in a diplomat in the United Nations. And so the first question that we kind of have is walk us through what is fractional reserve banking in the United States and how exactly does it work? 
Before I get jump into that, can I just uh, step back for a minute just to unpack when you you brought in uh, quite a few topics together, and one thing that you know struck uh, me uh, right away is that inclusive growth. And I think the audience really needs to understand what do we mean by inclusive growth beyond the rhetoric. It's very easy to say we want inclusive growth. So economic growth, you know, if you ask any economist of any stripe or any kind of background, they would agree that it comes from three uh, sort of main sources. One is that Growth comes from adding more labor to the labor force and add more capital to the economy that gives you growth, meaning investment, and how the capital and labor are combined, which is known as productivity, a total factor of productivity, that gives you growth. So those three factors drive economic growth. Growth tends to be inclusive when you have a balanced growth between, you know, not just adding more labor to the workforce. Just to give you an example, if you add more labor, the wages can fall because you have a huge supply of labor. And if there's no improvement in productivity, the workers will be paid based on what they produce on a per hour basis or per, this is, a, I'm talking about classical macro explanation. So wages would, would tend to fall. So you need, when you add labor, you have to add capital as well. But most important source of growth is productivity growth. This is where technology comes in. This is where all the efficiency comes in. And institutional structure matters a lot. And now what kind of institutions you have, why the US productivity growth is higher, then the rest of the world productivity growth, partly because US has better institutions, better incentive structures. If you look at, again, I'm digressing a little bit before coming to this uh, question that you asked. If you look at the US equity, a return on US equities versus the rest of the world equities, US on average is about 4% higher uh, return on equity. This is historically, and if you look at last 20 years or 30 years, out of that, about one fourth or 1% of that can be explained by U.S. being the reserve currency, meaning that people want to hold or buy U.S. equity because they're deemed to be safe, safer than other investments you can make in Brazil or any other country. So, But the rest of it comes because of efficiency of the U.S. economy. And now Apple's of the world or uh, Amazon's of the world, they're definitely way more efficient than, uh, than other, their counterparts in other countries. So that is the productivity story. But the question is that you can have a lot of productivity growth, but that may not be inclusive. You can have people like, you know, a farm can squeeze the labor as much as they can and get a lot of efficiency gains. And that can be distributed to the, uh, the owners of the farm, like you now the equity holders. But that doesn't mean necessarily mean an inclusive growth. So inclusive growth is very uh, sort of inclusive when you have the wages grow proportionally. And if you look at the U.S., real wages stagnated. And now, right now we see a little bit of a movement in the wages, but if you think since you know early 2000, up until the pandemic, real wages in the U.S. was lower in 2018-19 relative to what the real wages were in 1999. So for about you know 20 years, there was no growth at all in real wages. I'm talking about the average real wage. Not uh, of course there is a huge dispersion of wages of the CEOs exponentially grew, but the wages of the people at the bottom of the, the distribution, it didn't grow at all. So, so let's keep that in mind when you talk about inclusive growth. So you have to think about not just adding labor, not just adding capital, but also making sure that the economy has sufficient productivity growth and that productivity growth is driven by labor and labor gets the share of it. Meaning that the, you, one way the economists look at it is the labor share of the national income. How much of the income goes to the labor? How much of the income goes to the capital? In the U.S., it's just you know about sixty or seventy percent. Sixty—it's a two-third, one-third rule usually. 
a two-third goes to the uh, to the labor and one-third goes to capital. But that has been reversing. You know, we see less and less share of income going to the labor side and more and more income going to the capital side or the innovation side. And that is so the source of many of the inequality story that you want to build in here is explained by that. And I can come back how monetary policy is contributing to that. But now, if I can go back to the question that you raised, what is fractional reserve banking? Yeah, no, let me, well, let me just kind of comment on that before we go back to kind of fractional reserve, because I think you make it, you kind of, you cue this up well. And so like what we talk about a lot on this podcast is to the extent that, that you look at a human being, they're not, the more and more, more and more of us are both laborers and capitalists, right? Because we hold equities, we might hold equities in a pension fund, we might be working for wages. And so in our, in our mainstream job, or we might have, you know, Jahed, I think has five jobs, you know, and works for like 10 DAOs. Um, and so, you know, in some of those, he's getting tokens and others, he's getting God knows what, and some of them he's getting fiat currency. So the question here is not, I mean, it's not so much that when we bifurcate labor and capital here and the return to labor and the return to capital, the reality is if more of us were owners of the things that we were working on, we wouldn't care as much about the wages that we were getting to the extent that we also had additional income streams coming from dividends, coming from profit share and coming from ESOPs. Is that an accurate way of thinking about this or um, is that uh, kind of, is that naive? I wish you were right. In fact, and when you talk about we, you are probably the privileged 1% or 5% or 10%. If you look at the equity ownership in the US and if you uh, take out the, the 401ks and you know the indirect you know uh, sort of equity holding that is you know through the pension schemes and other schemes actually equity ownership is very limited. I think about still the number is about I think under 25% of US households have direct equity ownership. So it is not as broad based as we think. And obviously, in ownership economy that you described, I think it is spreading. Uh, there are more opportunities for people to be both a worker and an owner. But we're not there yet in terms of uh, still uh, entrepreneurship that we are seeing. And this is no different from small ownership, small business ownership in the U.S. You know, uh, actually, uh, 99% of the U.S. businesses are, are small businesses. And about 1% of the businesses are considered uh, large businesses that, are, that employ more than 500 people. So, but did that change the income distribution in the U.S.? You know, you have very large, their owners and their workers, moms and pops shops are all over the country, right? No, at least it used to be but you see less and less of that. Now you're changing this in the digital environment and you're hoping that be more equitable, more inclusive. But there are a lot of steps in between because uh, you may have an ownership economy where you are both a worker and an owner and you are not so much concerned about your wages or what you earn on your time that you contribute, but rather uh, on your intellectual contribution and also your uh, contribution to management and, uh, and your as a capital owner. But that is very not no different from small businesses that we have in the U.S. But small businesses are getting squeezed and for many, many reasons. You know, you see big businesses are doing much better. Uh, just to, again, give a number, although big businesses account for 1% of the uh, number of businesses in the U.S., they employ 50% of the empl- uh, workforce. Other 50% are uh, small businesses. So, again, in a very convoluted way, I wish we had an ownership economy where uh, wages didn't matter. If you are owning and if you're working, then you should have you know a return that would compensate to uh, that would compensate you for your capital and for your time for your the work you put in. 
talk to Uber drivers, talk to uh, many of the people who are in the share economy, who are in this ownership economy. The story is not so clear cut. So I may sound a little bit more skeptical here, but that doesn't mean that you wouldn't have the potential to, be, to make it more inclusive. And that's where the policies would make a difference. Yeah. And so I think this comes back to kind of the original question that we were on, right? So if we think about the economy in a static way and just break this down that a certain portion of kind of income goes to labor, a certain portion goes to capital, and that changes over time, right? Mm -hmm. And it changes over time based on a whole bunch of different things. Productivity growth, it actually changes based on the rate of return that capital gets versus the the rate of kind of uh, wage growth. This is what Piketty showed, right? But this ties back to the original question about the Fed, right? Because what's, what we've had over the course of the past 10 years is a massive increase in the balance sheet of the Fed. And that balance sheet of the Fed, what we had starting in 2008 with quantitative easing and then with the expansion of the Fed in to deal with the pandemic, we've had this period of loosening of monetary policy over 12 years in order to make sure that we have enough liquidity in the in kind of the economy. The challenge with that is is the challenge that you brought up, right? Which is that that normally leads to asset inflation, and financial assets and real assets are primarily held by a very small portion of the population. And so, in order to kind of have a conversation about CBDCs and the role that CBDCs could play in expanding the tool set of the Fed, I think we have to start at like what does the Fed actually do? And how does it work by like getting into the plumbing? And so if we get back to that kind of original question of what is fractional reserve banking and, and what exactly is the Fed doing when it when we say that it's expanding its balance sheet? Yeah, very good question, Martin. First of all, you know, we have to go to the, in the macro 101 or monetary policy 101. So what is money and what is credit? You know, right? So you earn income and then you put money in the bank. So your money, your asset, then bank can create, create credit out of it. At bank, there are two ways money is being created, through credit creation channel and through money printing channel. Like So we have, when you look at the basically the M0, the base money of a central bank, which is basically the amount of currency in circulation that the Fed or any central bank can control directly. For example, they can print more or they can you know, issue more currencies. But obviously, they don't do it because that creates inflation directly. And other part of this base money or M0 is that fractional reserve that banks set aside with the central bank. And that together becomes your monetary base. And so based on the monetary base is the denominator and the total credit being created, M2, that is total money supply, is a function of M0. How is that? Because if you do the equation M2 over M0, you're looking at the money multiplier. So working in reverse, uh, what you are seeing is that if you have $100 and if you have a 10% reserve requirement, that $100 would create a $1,000 amount of money or $1,000 worth of credit. 10, 100 divided by 0.1 is 1,000. So that's how the fractional reserve banks happen. So every bank would, uh, first bank would get $100 from you but all $100 would not go into credit or money creation. So $90 would be on the bank's balance sheet. Or that would be part of the, you know, I said, term deposit or checking deposit, which is all part of M2. And $10 would go to the reserve of the central bank. Then the next bank, so now you give $90 a credit, somebody receives the check for 
the person would deposit that money, $90, but the next bank would again uh, do $81 of credit and $9 go in the, in the central bank's balance sheet. And that's how you create the fractional reserve banking. So overall, you have altogether you have $100 of base money being created. All the banks depositing the fraction and fraction and fraction, they'll all add up to 100 miraculously. And you'd have $1,000 created as credit by the banks. So banks play a very important role. Actually, households may play a very important role by depositing money. If you don't deposit money, money will not be created. So when you receive your paycheck, if you put it under your pillow, say your employer gives you cash and you put it under your pillow, then no money will be created. It'll be just out of the system. So by putting money in the system, you're creating credit and creating money. And then part of the money goes to the central bank balance sheet and part of the money comes to, to businesses in the form of credit. So if that framework is clear, so that's how the economy operates. Now, the question is, that why do we have reserve requirements? Before you go into that, and that's really how things work until 2008, right? Where we hit yeah. the lower bound of interest rates and we moved yeah. to kind of an, an ample reserve policy and the, the money multiplier kind of didn't break down, but the denominator essentially became zero and sort of became infinite, right? And so we now have this policy where the Fed has really two levers that they can utilize to achieve their dual, their kind of dual mandate or what has become a dual mandate of keeping stable prices in the economy because inflation has a, well, it has may have a pernicious effect on people that have capital, that have assets, it, all, it really has a pernicious effect on people that are on the kind of the lower end of the economy or lower end of kind of the the, uh, distribution of wealth, because in a world where their wages aren't rising, inflation really eats at their ability to buy groceries or their ability to pay for their kids' education, right? The second way that they, so so one way that they can, can target, you know, achieving this dual mandate of stable prices and the second mandate of maximum sustainable employment is by raising and lowering the Fed funds rate, which I want, which would be really helpful for you to understand, to explain. And then the second is through direct asset purchases through balance sheet policy, which is really what's changed over the course of the last 12 years. Okay. Can you so, explain uh, both of yeah, those in a little yeah. detail? Yeah. So, so first of all, a little bit of history. But 2006, actually two years before the financial crisis, uh, the Fed basically changes policies on reserves. Introduced a very interesting policy that Fed would Pay into before the reserve requirement was sort of a of a penalty on the banks where you're collecting cash, but you have to set aside some cash with the uh, with either in your vault or in the uh, central bank's balance sheet, so that in case there's a bank run, ah, you are able to meet the liquidity demand. So if someone says, "Oh, this bank is failing," say for example in 2008, IndyMac. There was a huge bank run on IndyMac in California, and everyone uh, sort of the regulators wanted to make sure that there's there's enough liquidity in the banks, although still people were not fully paid. So you have the reserve requirements that goes to the central bank balance sheet. In 2006, Fed said, when you put money on the central bank balance sheet, you'll earn interest. So banks started now having new incentives. So they would put, instead of lending to the real economy, and they can put money on the central bank balance sheet and they earn interest rates. So there's absolutely no cost for them not to lend. And then not only that, banks have a required reserve, required reserve, required reserves and excess reserves. Excess reserves that they don't, they have liquidity lying around. They can put also put it on the central bank balance sheet. And on that also, from 2006 onward, they can earn interest. So what happened in the global financial crisis when 
There was a huge liquidity challenge. And many of the, actually, that law was supposed to come into effect in 2009 or 2010. But Fed fast forwarded, Treasury fast forwarded and said, no, we have to make sure the banks are able to put their liquid asset on the balance sheets of the central bank. So that's when you see, if you look at the graph of, uh, of Fed's balance sheet, it was just about 2008, nine, not the balance sheet. You look at the reserves held in the Fed, Fed uh, in the Fed, you see skyrocketing of reserves held in the Fed's balance sheet. I think it was from about, Fed used to have about 30 or 40 billion held in reserves. That was a required reserve. It, it went up to 1.6, 1.7 trillion by the end of 2008, 2009. Now the question is, what does Fed do with this all this excess liquidity? And that's when the QE became very helpful. So QE, Fed doesn't buy, QE is a swap operation. Quantitative quantitative easing, what happens is that now Fed has your money, you are the bank, Fed has a huge amount of liquidity that you have stashed on the Fed balance and earning interest, right? Earning quarter point, quarter at 25 basis point or 50 basis point. Fed puts the liquidity back onto your balance sheet and buys the mortgage-backed securities, MBS, or the treasury securities from you. So do you understand the operation? What happens? So Fed is giving you liquidity back to your balance sheet. But this time there, there's a swap. Swap is that you can, your, why did Fed do that? Because Fed wanted to prop up the prices of the MBS. MBS was, nobody wanted to hold the MBS in 2008 after Lehman collapsed. So only way you could support the price of the MBS that was on the balance sheet of all the major banks and the shadow banks, Fed said, okay, you can basically sell it to us. We'll buy it from you. And we'll give, was Fed printing money? If you look at the total money supply, it didn't change. So Fed was simply recycling the reserves that they had and exchanged it for the MBS. So now MBS are on the balance sheet of the Fed and the liquidity went back to the banks. Expectation was that with this excess liquidity, two goals would be met. One goal would be that you'd support the mortgage-backed security prices. So security markets would stabilize. There'll be no run on the security market and the Everything was frozen at that time. There's no, no demand for MBS. Nobody wanted to buy MBS. So you really stabilized the mortgage market and the securitization market on that. But second goal of Fed had is was that by buying these securities, they will keep the long-term interest rates low. Because what happens that you know the when the bond price, the bond price and yield on bond is inversely correlated, right? When the bond prices are high, your interest rates are low. So Fed's objective was to lower the interest rate as much as possible which is a secondary effect of stabilizing the prices of the bond, that would stimulate lending. That would stimulate economic activities. That would, people would go to the banks and they'd get credit and they'll start a new business. But that didn't happen over the last 12 years. So what we saw is that with a lot of liquidity, banks were basically using those liquidity to buy more securities or lend people to speculate on other securities. So it was not, if you look at the investment growth in the U.S. economy on the real investment, it didn't grow very much since 2009-10. So what we have seen over the last 12 years is basically a massive asset price bubble, but not so much of the real economy taking picking up. And that is the sort of unfortunate part of the Fed policy. And one last point that I would add here is that before the pandemic, right around the time of the pandemic, Fed has suspended the reserve requirements right now. So banks don't have to even meet any reserve requirements. They can put money still on the balance sheet, but there's no required reserve right now. On the new deposits that they receive, on the marginal deposits. So all the reserves that are already there, you can look at it up on St. Louis Fred database. 
But for any additional deposit that comes into the bank, they don't have to set aside any reserves. So reserve requirement as of now, as we speak, is suspended by the Fed because they think that they already have enough liquidity that they can't, they don't know what to do with it. So banks will not have to set aside any more. But that is a temporary measure. I believe that unwind as we have more normalization of the monetary policy. Okay, so let me break that down. Okay, so 2006, the Fed says we need to incentivize banks to essentially hold reserves with us or to put reserves. No, no, no other way around. So banks, we need, we need, we need yeah, to incentivize yeah. banks to put their reserves at the front. No, no, it doesn't have no incentive here because they were required to do that. But banks lobbied very hard because they said it's a penalty. And other countries, namely a few other countries, they paid, they remunerated the reserve record, record reserves. That was on free money. They said, look, I'm getting $100 but I can only charge interest on $90, but I'm paying interest on all $100. So you have to really pay me for the $10 that you are taking away from me. So it was the pressure from the banks uh, that Fed relented to. And a mistake that actually we wrote about it and mistake that the Fed made is that they also remunerated excess reserves. So now there's a fantastic arrangement. If you look at 2009 to 2019, excess reserve ballooned on the Fed balance sheet. They were just holding, and that is the liability. That's not the asset of the side. There's a liability side of the, of, the, of the Fed. So if you look at the asset and liability, so what happened, they again put it back on the balance sheet so that their asset grew and also the liability matched the assets. Yeah. Cool. So effectively, the, the banks lobbied the Fed. The Fed essentially says, we're going to pay interest on reserves, yeah. right? So now the banks and the Fed is always going to pay. Right. So whatever the rate of interest that's paid on reserve is essentially the floor rate, right? Yeah. That or the what's called IRRB, the interest on reserve balances, yeah. that essentially sets the floor that banks are willing to essentially return on capital that, that, that banks are willing to accept. The other kind, if you think about the window that banks are willing to kind of lend at, banks lend to each other in the overnight market, right? Mm-hmm. And so the difference between the floor that the Fed sets through the, the interest on reserve balances and the market that the repo market that the banks lend to each other, lend commercial paper to each other overnight is essentially how the, when we say that the Fed is trying to target this interest rate, that's how they actually do it. And that really was the only, the only policy prior to 2008, where we then added the second peg of the Fed of the Fed for kind of influencing how we loosen and tighten money supply in the US. And that was uh, essentially through balance sheet policy. Balance sheet policy started with QE. And effectively, the Fed conjured out of thin air liquidity by essentially taking assets off of the balance sheets of banks, buying them, right, which essentially freed up the banks to go out. And if you think about kind of the reserve requirements, or not even the reserve requirements, but just in terms of their, their ability to lend against their equity, it freed up some of their ability to go out and buy more assets, which essentially stimulated the asset prices, a whole wide swath of assets. And the primary two things that the Fed was buying during this period of time were mortgage-backed securities. A mortgage-backed security is just a bunch of houses that have been put together, or a bunch of mortgages for houses that have been put together into essentially a, a tranche of a security that can be sold. And it was a major kind of component of blowing up the market in 2008. And then treasuries, which are the deepest kind of most liquid market in the world, U.S. treasuries. So is that kind of the the two pillars or the two ways that up until now, when we're considering central bank digital currencies, that the Fed can influence monetary policy in the U.S.? 
Yeah. Fed has basically essentially three tools, not two. One is the reserve requirements, which is a very blunt tool. You're basically targeting quantity of money available. So if you think about if you raise reserve requirements to 30%, then you have way less liquidity in the system. All the money comes to the Fed balance sheet or banks keep it in their vaults, but they can't lend. Okay, so that's the first. And often many economists are against this quantitative restrictions on money. Second is, of course, the, the, the policy rate or the uh, Fed funds rate. This is the rate that Fed tries to target. Fed can unilaterally uh, set. So whenever they say, okay, we'll raise the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points, this is their desire, wishful thinking. This is the band that they'll be able to target. And that's more or less they're able to achieve. Uh, so that is basically short-term liquidity management. Like, you know, you need, you have a payment that is due tomorrow. You don't have enough liquidity on your balance sheet. You go uh, to Fed in the evening and say, okay, I need $100 million. And Fed would lend you, or you can go to another bank and another bank would lend you. But Fed funds rate is usually cheaper than the interbank rate. Uh, so Fed, Fed is often becomes that. But you also don't want to go to Fed too frequently. Then Fed might say, oh, this bank is in trouble. So we have to go and uh, look into that. Uh, so they try to first do it interbank. But interbank liquidity can dry up too. So they would go to Fed and Fed would provide the liquidity. This is a more liquidity management strategy as well. And the third one that was since 2009 is the QE. And QE, you know, again, QE was limited in 2009, 10, 11, which was purely buying MBS. But we saw that after the global financial, after the uh, pandemic, Fed expanded the holding of US treasuries tremendously. And that is a blessing for Fed. Fed was able to do that because Fed already had a lot of liquidity through the reserves and excess reserves. So they were able to swap it. And that also kept the long-term borrowing costs for the U.S. government very low. So it was a win-win with U.S. Treasury. So you have to remember one thing. Any profit that Fed makes, Federal Reserve, ultimately, after paying for all its costs, it goes back to the Treasury. Treasury owns the Fed. Federal Reserve Board, not the Federal Reserve Banks. So ultimately, that helped the U.S. government to have keep its borrowing costs very low. And that's the issue that we would probably discuss later on, that U.S. being a reserve currency has a huge advantage. U.S., despite having such a high debt-to-GDP ratio or high level of debt, U.S. borrowing cost is the lowest. U.S. government borrowing cost is like, you know, close to like what? You know, 10-year treasury is now what the yield is, what? A little over 2%. So if any other government had to borrow that much in such a short period of time, they would have paid a huge premium. But the U.S. is able to basically take advantage of the QE and was able to borrow, keep its borrowing cost or borrow the interest rates very, very low. And that helped. Uh, Janet Yellen actually last year made one very interesting thing that we shouldn't look at the debt to GDP ratio or even debt servicing to GDP ratio. We should look at what percentage of our government revenue goes into servicing our interest. And right now, it's so low, interest payments are so low relative to our revenue, so we have no reason to worry. And that is the advantage that, that the U.S. has over many other governments. I probably went a little... Yeah, I want to come back to that because I want to unpack that in, in a yeah. bit later. But just to be clear, so the Fed is now generating kind of 80 to $100 billion a year, and it's essentially paying that to the U.S. government, right? And yeah. now the Fed's got it, so the... Or it's paying it to the Treasury. And so the Fed's balance sheet assets are at $9 trillion. The Today, to, to remind people, 12 years ago, they were at zero, right? So we've increased the balance sheet of the Fed in, in, through these purchases to $9 trillion. And now the Fed is saying that 
it's going to essentially let, it's not going to keep purchasing MBS when those bonds mature, or, or it's going to regroup, re, you know, actually reduce and, and sell into the market about a hundred billion worth of treasuries and MBS in order to essentially tighten what we call tighten kind of monetary policy. What effect does that have in the market? What has, what does the private sector have to do when the Fed does that? First of all, private sector is already factoring in in their you know forecasting horizon that Fed would tighten. The tightening is cycle is an inevitable, even if the economy doesn't pick up. If Fed has to fight two uh, challenges, uh, the price stability challenge is far more daunting for Fed, and Fed cannot allow this uh, inflation to get out of control. So Fed now would before you know Fed had the mandate of full employment. But now full employment, we're almost there. But but what we're seeing that inflation that we have in the U.S. is not because of the Philip curve, typical inflation employment trade-off. Like you know, when your employment is at is the, the you know, full employment level, you expect inflation to uh, go up. But that inf- this inflation is a supply-side inflation, not a demand-side inflation. And we can go into that discussion later. But so Fed is in a very tight spot right now. So they have to raise interest rates. They have to tighten the monetary policies, meaning that they would basically ask the banks to take back or to buy some of this, you know, the assets that they were holding, which would mean that the the overall credit crunch or liquidity crunch uh, would be there. Because, you know, as typical, as traditional sort of classical explanation would be that when the price of money goes up, you borrow less, you save more, right? So savings will go up and investment, borrowing and investment will go down and on both sides. But it also has a global spillover effect, and which might be of interest to you, because when interest rates go up in the U.S., there's huge capital inflows back to the U.S., meaning that most of the investors in the last 10 years or so, they invested in the emerging markets, many in Africa, partly because the yield on those African bonds adjusted for risk were much higher than what you could get in the U.S. Now, when the U.S. yield is rising, especially U.S. Uh, Treasury, which is the safest asset, then you'd see, again, pullback from those markets and all this liquidity would come back to the U.S. So it's a seesaw kind of a mechanism. So what happens when you have more liquidity chasing, say, now investors will readjust their portfolios and they will, uh, say, uh, reduce their exposure to Africa or, say, Southeast Asia, and they'll bring their liquidity back to the U.S., then U.S. asset prices will go up again. So that's the uh, thing. So as more there will be more demand for U.S. assets. So U.S. economy somehow the way it is structured right now is head I win, uh, tail you lose. So either way, it helps because when the interest is very low, U.S. investors can get high yields from the rest of the world, and when the interest starts rising in the U.S., the money back, comes back to the U.S. and you can again get an arbitrage and you're getting a huge return on uh, readjusting your portfolio. So in the immediate run, in the, in the short-term horizon, uh, you would see a lot of volatility in the capital market, especially if Fed continues to raise interest rates in the next four meetings. And then you see a lot of money coming back. And we saw that before, taper tantrum, or even before that, that money usually comes back to the U.S. very, very quickly. And there's another factor to it also. As U.S. interest rates rises, uh, the debt sustainability of the developing countries fall because they, they're all their debt is... Yeah, so, so I want to get into that in a bunch of detail, Hamid. So, yeah. so before we do that, so effectively, 
the first challenge around this kind of this balance sheet policy of quantitative easing is that in the U.S., if we're looking at inequality in the U.S., the vast majority of people don't own financial assets. And so when you have a policy like this, it inflates financial assets and inflates people that own real assets like real estate and place people, you know, or gold or Bitcoin or whatever. And what's interesting for this podcast is that the entirety of the crypto movement has been during this period. And so if you look at kind of the price of a board ape, or you look at the price of an NFT, or you look at the price of all of these cryptocurrencies, it's all been in a world where you've had an, an expansionary kind of policy. And so it has an effect on those that do have securities, but are essentially allocating a portion of their portfolio to crypto. And now we're entering this world where crypto is maturing at the same time that the Fed's going to pull back a lot of this liquidity. But from a, a quality perspective, it actually, in an inclusiveness perspective in the US, it has this fairly detrimental effect in the fact that the vast majority of people don't own these sorts of assets. And so they're not seeing this wealth effect of the last 12 years, and they're not seeing this. But it also has this pernicious effect overseas as well, because the reality for countries in Africa or other countries where you're focused in your work is that a lot of these countries have balance of payments problems and they're borrowing in dollar denominated debt. So what does it mean when a country that's not the U.S. that doesn't have its own reserve currency borrows in dollar denominated debt? Basically, it's uh, what economists call you have to look at the uncovered interest rate parity, meaning that if U.S. interest rates is rising and you're, you are not able to raise your interest rates, you know, in the same manner, that although some countries are raising their interest rates to the detriment of their growth, but that means your currency's value would fall. Your currency would devalue. So what happens is that you, there's a your debt is denominated in dollars, but your revenues are in local currency. I'll give you the example: Ghana in back in 2000. Seven, first time they issued a sovereign bond. And at that time, their Ghanaian city, a city was almost one, $1 to one city, equal parity. Two years later, after the global financial crisis, and Dankana saw massive outflow of capital, short-term capital, and they were not able to raise interest rates. Ghanaian city became $1 to five Ghanaian city in two years' time. Okay, Now, your earnings, your interest payments in Ghanaian city at that time was 61 million city. So think about it now. You have, at, that was when you converted into a local currency. The interest payments were in dollars, but it was equivalent to 61 million dollars. That 61 million dollar interest payment, coupon payment was fixed, right? Two years later, it became 300 million city. Not because of you borrowed extra, but simply because the currency devalued tremendously. 500% devaluation. And that is the exchange rate risk that many of the sovereigns are unable to deal with. So right now, many of the countries, they are, again, facing a very difficult dilemma. They want to support their growth because what is happening after the pandemic, unlike the US, where demand picked up very quickly, many of the countries, the demand is not picking up yet. So they need to keep very expansionary monetary and fiscal policy. So they stimulate demand. But that is contrary to what they're seeing on the exchange rate side, because exchange rate is under pressure. Many of the countries seeing their currencies losing value. And if that happens, the debt becomes unsustainable completely. And that is the trade-off they're facing right now. Do we pursue growth or do we pursue debt sustainability? If they want to pursue growth, they have to keep their interest rates low and they should allow their exchange rate to fall. But if exchange rate falls, which stimulates export, of goods and services, but at the same time, it makes your debt very expensive. Do you understand that? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, yeah. and so the the direct impact for like people who care about 
wanting to build inclusive societies is that effectively a country, and maybe like people are more familiar with the case of Greece, right? A country now has to make a decision. Am I going to invest in my children's education? Am I going to invest in healthcare? Am I going to invest in, you know, new trying to create the the Silicon Valley of Athens or the Silicon Valley of Ghana? No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay debt. I'm going to pay, pay, you know, interest payments on this unsustainable debt, right? And so like this kind of tedious macroeconomic policy actually has substantial impacts on inequality and substantial impacts on on how we think about kind of building inclusive ownership economies. So now we enter this world and the, the, the U.S. government or the Fed is now kind of thinking about creating a central bank digital currency. So what is a central bank digital currency? What is central bank digital currency? Yeah. So it's basically another way of, uh, you know, what I think it was six countries are actively considering. As far as I know, only Bahamas have actually issued CBDC and others are either um, at the stage of exploring or running a pilot. Like People's Bank of China has run a pilot. A Bank of Sweden has run a pilot. Bank of Canada has considered it, but then decided not to go ahead with it. Send dollars that Bahama, Central Bank of Bahama, they're the only ones who actually went ahead and, and did that. So it is, again, uh, uh, it is a, not a major innovation in my view. It will uh, change quite a bit because what would happen is that you create a digital currency and digital currency, whether it will just allow to sort of interact between you and the commercial banks, or you'd allow even the, it go to the next level, to the consumer household level. Right. So if you have, say, you replace the creation of fiat currency and you are a fraction of your fiat currency and you just replace it with digital currency and say that this is the money that we have and we're taking out whatever fiat currency equivalent amount you take out, then you won't see any effect. Right. You know, it's just, you know, it's a different form of money. You'd have some gains on efficiency side in terms of settlement of payments and instantaneous payment systems. But overall, Money supply doesn't, is not affected because you are basically replacing, say, one dollar that you had, a physical dollar. You're saying, I'm not going to, I'm taking it out of circulation and I'm going to uh, replace it uh, with one digital currency. But that is not what the central banks are doing. They're creating digital currency on, without replacing the fiat currency. So it's an addition to, uh, to their money supply. So they're increasing the monetary base by a small fraction. But Again, who can hold those currencies? That will determine the velocity of money. That will determine the money multiplier. So if, say, CBDC, if government pays, say, households, transfer payments, say, social security payments, say, the Fed announces, say, for example, tomorrow that it will use, by the way, Fed doesn't issue money, Office of Control of Currency, that they use issue money. Okay, so OCC has to do it. Fed would be the intermediary. So OCC creates a digital currency and they give it to Fed. And Fed says uh, the payments for Social Security from the next month will all be in digital currency. Then you are basically seeing a direct effect. So people are now holding uh, digital currencies. They are going to go to stores. If it's a legal tender, everybody has to have it. Now, the question is that when uh, you deposit your social security check, no, not a check, payment that you received it online, uh, what do you do with it? Do we need to put it in a bank? Why would you put it in a bank? Bank can offer you an interest uh, on that digital currency. Again, whether interest will be paid in, in, in digital currency or in a, a, in a, a fiat currency, that has to be determined. Say if 
banks say, okay, we'll accept the deposit from you, and then we're going to give it a fraction of that would be put in back in the in the Fed's account. Whether that fractional reserve banking would, would be required in that scenario, that's a big question. Why would you need fractional reserve banking in that environment? And other issue is that, so say- so I just want to, I want to break that down quickly. Uh-huh. So effectively what you're saying is right now, we don't have access to the Fed. You and me, we can't go to the Fed and say, hey, I want to borrow it at 0.4%, right? And this is another challenge that for why kind of the, the wealthier get wealthier, right? Uh-huh. So I, I've got a friend who works in private wealth management at Goldman Sachs, and they were convincing one of their clients to essentially take out a $75 million 30-year note at 1% fixed, mm-hmm. right? And just invest it in the market. You know, none of the three of us on, on this podcast have the ability to do that, right? And so we don't have access to banking from the Fed. What you're saying is that if you create a central bank digital currency and that central bank digital currency is real time, and there's a system for essentially allocating wallets to you, me, and Jawhead, then why couldn't the Fed just, you know, issue CBDC or issue USD token to us? without having to go through JP Morgan or without having to go to, through Bank of America. Yeah, yeah, what the yeah. Fed has said about this is that, no, we'll have to go through the intermediaries because they've seen the problem associated with this, right? But you know that is effectively, you could remove the intermediary between us and the banking, us and the Fed, but effectively the, the Fed has said, we don't want to do that because it's going to have negative effects on the economy in terms of potentially soaking up credit. Sorry to interrupt, but, but just wanted to make that clear. No, I think, uh, you know, again, and all JPM uh, or all these uh, big banks, they also perform a function. They, uh, you know, the reason that that we have these intermediaries because whole we know the problem of capitalism. Everyone wants to make money with other people's money. It's capitalism without capital, uh, meaning that when we had shadow banking problems in 2008, running to the global financial crisis in 2007, eight. Everything was related to how banks were able to reduce capital requirements. So they were creating new vehicles, you know, QSPE, Qualified Special Purpose Entities. So that idea that you are of balance sheet entity, you don't need to have capital, and would basically pack all our mortgages in those uh, balance, of balance sheet uh, entities, and they would be able to borrow against that. And they would be, we'd have liquidity and would use the liquidity again to create more mortgages. That's how the bubble was created. Right. So if you had the same capital requirements for the QSPEs, then they couldn't create as much mortgage as they were creating. Now they're coming back uh, you know, to the present time. So the whole function of intermediation is linked to that you have skin in the game. So you as a bank, you put some money on the table. Like this is my capital. If something goes wrong, I would also suffer some losses. And that is the intermediation function. And because of they have capital on the line, line of fire, they have to do due diligence. They have to make sure that money is reaching the right person. Fed, and that is that for Fed, the transition cost will be too high to say, I want to give all the social security checks directly to the recipients, say, say 30 million checks go out. And Fed would say 30 million tokens will be created. But how do we make sure Two percent of them didn't die last year or last month. Or how do we make sure the money is actually going to the right wallet? How do we make sure that uh, wallets are uh, verified and there are you know, all this due diligence function? That's where the intermediaries would always be there in one form or the other. The question that we would ask probably in the next session, if we do a next session, is that how do we in the digital currency world how do you assign capital requirements? How do you make sure that? Uh, it's very good to minimize intermediaries. Now, there are a lot of inefficiencies in the banking system. There are four, five, six intermediaries to settle a payment. 
it is possible to reduce it to two or one. Uh, but the question is that, but you have to have a mechanism to share risks. Now you say you give me sort of, I take a loan of say uh, 10 million tokens of some currency. And then basically you have gotten that money from says Jahed. No, say he has put this uh, tokens with you, trusted you. How do you make sure that I don't run away with that or disappear completely? And what is your role as an intermediary uh, to make sure that Jahid is get, uh, gets paid back? So you have to, unless you have some skin in the game, your reputation alone would not uh, do the job. So I think these are the, all the things that, and that is the question of financial stability that we have to address. And again, you keep uh, bringing this up, and I think there's a very important issue. The system that we have created so far, and, and since at least 2008, it is very pro-asset. It's not creating enough jobs. It's not creating enough investments. It is not really, it's basically creating financial cycles. So we have one cycle and we have some correction and you have some sell-offs and then some of the people buy back at the very low price and then they wait for the next bubble, the next wave. And then at the big price, they sell again. So it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is actually enriching the rich, those who can afford to have financial assets, but it's really not helping the real economy. I think that is the big issue and is definitely not addressing inequality. If anything, since 2009, inequality in the US has risen significantly. And that is something that we cannot ignore. And we have written about it in the UN publication that part of the rising inequality can be explained by the Fed's policies. Fed policies have supported asset price inflation and hasn't supported job creation, investment and job creation sufficiently enough. And that is the thing. So if you ask me what could Fed do differently, Fed could say, look, I'm giving you liquidity. I'm giving you the QE. You are able to park your junk assets with me until the asset prices recover. But you, once you get the liquidity, you can only use it for X, Y, and Z. You cannot use it for anything that you want. And those kind of conditionalities or macroprudential requirements were needed, both macroprudential and macroprudential. And Fed didn't do that. Fed, again, had a lot of faith. The banking sector would do the best thing in their best interest. And, but that didn't happen. But this is something where kind of a CBDC could help, right? Because you could embed smart contracts into it to essentially say, with this token, you can only buy these things, right? So similar to EBP payments today. And so effectively, but you know, one negative outcome of a CBDC is that to the extent there aren't these intermediaries, you actually have potentially a higher inflation risk, right? Because it's almost like quantitative easing on crack, where effectively the the Fed can say, we're just going to print a lot of money, a new politician comes into power, they put a lot of pressure on the Fed, they kind of appoint new governors to the Fed, and they essentially, you know, say, we just want you printing as much money as possible for the people, or as many tokens as possible for the people, so that I get reelected. So that's one kind of downside of a CBDC. The the upside is that with smart contracts, so to the extent this was built on something like Ethereum, you could layer in the ability to say, this is only able to be purchased for these categories, right? Or for these particular consumer goods or for these particular assets and effectively deal with the inflation problem by targeting particular sectors where inflation is really out of control and then being more lenient in other sectors. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So in, beyond kind of the financial risk, the other thing that you kind of think about a lot at the UN is human rights. And so what are some of the human rights concerns that you have around a CBDC And tying that back to what you were saying earlier about institutions in the U.S. and productivity in the U.S. being higher than the rest of the world because of its strong institutions, you know, how do those human rights or how do those concerns around human rights vary between, say, a CBDC issued by the U.S. government versus, say, a digital yuan? 
And I think uh, this is a very, very difficult question to answer because you know I don't deal with directly with human rights, but the, if you take human rights broadly, you know uh, main issues of transparency and accountability is the fundamental of all human rights. So whatever the institutions do, they need to be transparent and they need to be accountable. But you know, in some country context, you know you have those accountability structures are not very clear, very well defined. So if you want to use digital currency to crack down on corruption, that can be a good thing. But if you want to digital currency to target your political opponents and quash all opposition or favor one group of businesses that are uh, politically aligned uh, with the government and punish other businesses, so you'd have more direct tools available. So as the saying goes, like it, it depends on how, what you do with it. And if you don't have the right driver behind it, Ah, you, it can be abused, or it can be if you have the right motivation, right structure, right accountability, and checks and balances. It can do many good things, but also it can be abused in many ways, basically to you know create more problems. So I would not, I, you know, I, human rights. When you talk about, you know, it's a very broad agenda, human rights. But I would say that the whether ultimately it's not CBDC itself as a concept, but institutions behind the CBDC that would matter a lot. And if you have the right kind of institutions and they have the right sort of accountability structure uh, to their, I mean, uh, to their stakeholders, then uh, CBDC can be a very effective tool to promote financial inclusion, to promote, you know, more efficient distribution allocation of uh, credit. Because what is happening right now, you don't credit allocation is very opaque, and banks, you know, they their own algorithms, they do all the calculations. But I think central banks would be able to see where the credit is going on an instantaneous basis. They can give guidance or they can punish a bank on a daily basis. Okay, you are you are giving too much credit to housing sector. You need to have more credit in the CRA. Right now, in a Community Reinvestment Act in the US, which was a very important act in terms of making sure money goes to the underserved communities. But that is being abused by banks and right and left. So you can have much better monitoring of activities by the intermediaries. It's not just the banks, all other non-bank entities too. You can have much better monitoring and accountability structure in place. I think we are two, it's 207. Um, yeah, we... so I guess like the, you know, just finishing on that point, right? The In the US, the, the concern might be that the US government has the ability to see what you're buying, right? And there's concerns around privacy. And we're actually having Dr. Jaya Clara um, Brecky from NIM come on and talk about the technology that they're building around uh, securing privacy in, in these tra- transactions in a couple of weeks. But if you're in a place like China and you've got a social credit score, a digital yuan could actually be tied to that social credit score and then could be tied to the meta information around that social credit score. And so you should a- could actually lose access. So yeah. It couldn't just be about you know, I don't have access to credit or financial inclusion. It could actually be access to all sorts of other aspects of society and the ability to dissent, the ability to organize. And so this tool is really kind of a double-edged sword in that it could could enable a third or fourth policy tool for the Fed to hit this man- dual mandate, but it could also potentially hit concerns around civil liberties and, and, mm-hmm. and human rights over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I think like we've taken kind of a, a good amount of your time. We really appreciate you coming on, um, Hamid, yeah. and uh, hope to have you back to kind of go deeper on this and and kind of delve into DeFi now that we have kind of an understanding of how de- how kind of the traditional financial system works. And now we can talk about kind of how to disrupt it through decentralized finance. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thanks a lot, Hamid. Thank you. Thank you.